If you're enjoying the type of content you get here at Riverside Chats, conversations that go in-depth on art, politics, and everything in between, please consider becoming a supporter of the show. You can find a link in the show notes that allows you to give a recurring or single amount, whatever you're comfortable with, whatever you think the show is worth, which maybe is nothing. In which case, ouch, if you think this is a valuable part of your week, then we would appreciate the support so we can continue to give you the quality that you came here for in the first place. Thank you for considering supporting Riverside Chats and enjoy the show. KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Maria Corpus, and today I'm talking to Jessica Lander, author of Making Americans, stories of historic struggles, new ideas, and inspiration in immigrant education. Today in the United States, one in four students are immigrants or the children of immigrants. And so that also means that we need to all be thinking thoughtfully, um, intentionally about how we're creating schools, how we're creating communities that best support immigrant origin students. This book examines immigrant education through historical moments and court decisions, current efforts to improve immigrant education, and profiles of immigrant youth in schools across the country. Stay tuned for our conversation after this break. Riverside Chats. I'm Maria Corpus. In 1919, Nebraska enacted a statute known as the Simon Act, which restricted the use and study of foreign languages in the classroom. A year later in Hampton, Nebraska, a parochial school instructor named Robert Meyer was convicted under the law for teaching German to an 11-year-old boy. The case made it all the way to the United States Supreme Court in Meyer v. Nebraska, which ruled in Meyer's favor in 1923. Author Jessica Lander uses Meyer v. Nebraska and other key historical moments to look at the past, present, and future of immigrant education in America in her book, Making Americans, Stories of Historic Struggles, New Ideas, and Inspiration in Immigrant Education, available now wherever you get your books. Lander is herself a teacher at a public high school in Massachusetts. Here is my conversation with Jessica Lander. I read in your bio that you're an author, a teacher, and an advocate. And I really want to kind of tap into that advocate space. You know, we get, we know what a teacher and a writer does, but tell us more about your work as an advocate. Oh, well, um, I, I think they're, they're all intertwined. So Absolutely. I'm, first and foremost, I am a teacher. Um, and um, the work I do both in and out of the classroom, I see as different types of advocacy. Um, and so I see also a lot of my writing as forms of advocacy and supporting um, often my students now. Um, but I see them very much intertwined in those two first um, hats, if you will. Um, but definitely, first and foremost, I'm a teacher. I mean, I have the, the honor and joy of teaching recent immigrant and refugee students from more than 30 countries in Lowell, Massachusetts. Um, and my students come from Colombia to the Democratic Republic of the Congo to Cambodia, and they do extraordinary things both in my classroom and outside. And so when I think about advocacy, I'm thinking about the ways that I can support my students and advocate for my students, um, whether it's in uh, supporting them accessing um, different learning opportunities in school or outside, in uh, supporting them in becoming advocates for others. We do a lot of action work in our class. Um, we're doing that right now. And so supporting them and learning the skills to be advocates for themselves in the community. And then two, thinking about the ways that I can advocate for them um, and for our communities out in the community or out across the state or out across the country. So very much intertwined. Have you had students come back and kind of give you, I don't know, their gratitude or what has your students' response been to this book and how you've been advocating for them? Um, so it's, uh, it's been a really powerful year. So the book came out in October and, um, I think at uh, seeing both sharing the book with my current students has been really powerful in the ways they've been curious in the stories, um, the ways too, in which I've brought that, I've tried to bring that history into our classroom and our teaching. Um, and then also the experiences I saw and learned from teachers from across the country, um, into my classroom, 
But I, I think to do it justice in terms of describing the impact it's had on me, um, as I say, I'm first and foremost a teacher. And uh, my students do extraordinary things. And they were the ones that inspired me to want to go write this book and to think about the ways both I could be a better teacher for them um, and also how we as schools could do better by supporting our students, making sure that we're investing in their strengths and making sure that we are doing our best to nurture a strong sense of belonging for our, our immigrant origin students so that they feel a strong connection to their communities and they feel that here is home. Because of course our newcomer students, our immigrant origin students are creating new homes and new lives here. And so I set up across the country to reimagine what immigrant education could look like. And to do that, I realized there were three types of stories that I needed to learn from. First, stories of the past, key moments in our history, and cases in laws that have transformed immigrant education over the last 150 years. Second, stories of the present stories of innovative programs across the country from a single classroom in North Dakota to an entire school district in North Carolina that are working with immigrant origin students today doing really innovative, creative things at a whole range of levels and scales um, and thinking about uh, their work and their ideas and how those can energize schools and programs across the country. And then finally, in addition to these stories of the past and these stories of the present, for me, the heart of the book, and this is because I'm a teacher, is those stories of the personal, so the stories of young people, um, because it was really important for me to make sure that we were listening to, that I was listening to and learning from, and that we all are listening to and learning from the wisdom of our young people as we think about reimagining what schools can be in the future. And so had the opportunity to sit down with seven of my extraordinary former students now and hear from them about their experiences of coming to this country and their experiences of our schools. And they were both deeply generous and courageous to share these stories with me so I could learn from them and then allowing me to share them with everyone in the book. So that's the frame of the book is looking at these three sets of stories, the past, the present, and the personal. And so to your question of what have students thought? Now, I would never want to speak for my students, um, but from me as a teacher experiencing the impact, it has been really powerful um, to see the transformation in my students and hearing particularly um, from these seven students whose stories I share. Um, and thinking back to when they were my, students in my classroom years ago, um, seeing in all the ways they have become advocates for their families, for their community, um, for, in many cases, educators. A number of them um, help support and train educators. Um, and seeing ways, too, they come back and advocate for students in my class um, and support their learning. Um, that's been really powerful for me and um, such an honor to watch. And it has just been a, a real... Uh, it's hard to put into words, but um, it, it really is. I'm just, I'm honored to have been able to learn their stories and to share those stories and that they let me share those stories. Um, and then um, as we now share these stories out into the world of knowing that folks all across the country are learning from their wisdom and their voices and still being very much in touch with them, um, sometimes on a weekly basis, a daily basis. And so getting their reactions um, to the book or sometimes when I'm giving talks about the book, sometimes they're talking um, about their stories. Uh, that's been really, really powerful. As I was reading the book, it really hit me that all of my favorite teachers were also ones that were willing to be the students from their students who are willing to consistently learn and grow from the information that each generation that passes gives them. And so I really valued that perspective from your book of, you know, I'm always going to be learning from you just as much as I hope I'm teaching you. Absolutely. It is very much two way. And I have learned such a tremendous amount and continue to learn such a tremendous amount, both from my current students, but also my former students. And it's, it's really I mean, it is wonderful to to still be in connection with uh, some of the students. So I have a, 
a number of students who I'm in closer contact with. Um, so one's from the book, but then then kids will drop by who I haven't seen in a couple of years, and they're they have uh, like really uh, they they have they're starting families or um, they have jobs they want to talk about, and it. Just uh, I, a girl walked in relatively recently to share that she was working on finishing college and she had this job in the community supporting young moms. And oh my gosh, it was just beautiful to just listen to her speak her power and her voice and her passions and her advocacy. And uh, remembering what um, she started doing in our class in terms of advocacy and then seeing the way she's grown in terms of confidence. Uh, they're the best. <laughs> I love it. it. And it's really great, like you said, courageous of them to be willing to share their stories with you and with, honestly, their classmates as well, to be willing to be seen in in the stage of their life that they're in. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, it's And there's so much we have to learn from our young people. I mean, if we're thinking about reimagining schools to better support our immigrant origin students, who better to ask than our students who are experiencing those schools? And there's definitely some that we can probably pick up on as teachers, but I learned so much from those conversations I had with my students. I sat down with each of those seven students for about 20 hours each, not at all one go, but uh, <laughs> that would have been painful, uh, 20 hours. I, I think I was struck again and again about the things I learned about their experience in schools that were really powerful. And I wish I had known when I was their teacher because I could have better supported them. I could um, have created more opportunities um, for their success in school. And so thinking then about the ways that we try to create more opportunities to learn from our young people while they're still in school. And then also, of course, asking our, our recent graduates to be our teachers. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with teacher, writer, and education policy advocate Jessica Lander, author of Making Americans, Stories of Historic Struggles, New Ideas, and Inspiration in Immigrant Education. Join the conversation on social media. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app, where you can also leave us a review. Or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089 for a chance to be featured on an upcoming show. Tell me more about your immigrant origin students, because I read that in the book and I was like, that's just a powerful phrase that I had no idea about, but I love it. Absolutely. So um, immigrant origin um, is immigrants are the children of immigrants. Um, so today in the United States, one in four students are immigrants or the children of immigrants. Um, and so this is, this is something that um, means that the number one in four are immigrants or the children of immigrants means that almost every community is having in their community a, a vibrant um, community of recent immigrants, um, either immigrants or the children of immigrants. And so that also means that we need to all be thinking thoughtfully, um, intentionally about how we're creating schools, how we're creating communities that best support immigrant origin students. Um, I like to use that language rather than, and it's slightly different then, but I often we think about for schools, thinking about English learners, um, or sometimes English as a second language. There's a lot of different terms. Now, the two terms are not synonymous. We're getting a little into jargon, but it's, I think, interesting here. So English as a second language doesn't work for me. Um, and I'll tell you why. Um, Robert, who is one of the uh, seven students in the book, for him it would be instead of ESL, ETL. English as a 10th language. It's extraordinary. And so... One, recognizing that our students might come with many languages before learning English. Um, but sometimes I think uh, EL, English learner, still might encourage us to focus just on language acquisition um, and supporting students with language, which is really important, absolutely. But thinking about the whole child, thinking about all the other things for students and young people outside of their roles as students and their identities as students that um, are important for them as they are crafting new homes and new lives here, as they're creating their identities, as they're setting out to figure out what they want to go do as adults um, is really important. So I, I like to sort of focus on using the term immigrant origin in that sense to rem, um, really focus on 
children and not as much on the language acquisition. Now, it, it's slightly different. You can, of course, have kids who are immigrant origin who are not a, in, in, an, in an English learner program anymore. And so they're not totally synonymous words. Um, but I, I want to be thinking about, and I would like schools to be thinking about, and many are, about all of the ways we're supporting kids, not just in language acquisition. So my book, really, as I, I started learning these stories of the past, the present, and the personal, it really struck me that all of these stories led to the idea of belonging and the importance of belonging for young people who are creating new homes and new lives here. And what what did it mean to belong? Um, and driving from all these stories, from all this wisdom shared by teachers across the country, from uh, folks at the heart of history who shared um, parts of their family's courageous work, and from my young people, um, really finding that there were eight elements of belonging um, that together um, help nurture a sense of belonging for young people. And so how can we be thinking about those eight elements? How can schools and communities be working to ensure and nurture that sense of belonging for young uh, immigrant origin students? I think it's really, really important. Um, one of those uh, uh, important aspects is, of course, language acquisition, and so thinking about English learners and um, that, but there are so many other elements. So I'll, I'll just give them to you here. These are the ones that, um, again, these teachers, my students, and folks at the heart of history taught me. Um, so the eight elements that um, I've found um, are, one, these are the eight elements of belonging. One, opportunities for new beginnings. Two, supportive communities. Three, assurances of security. Four, chances to dream. Five, committed advocates. Six, recognition of students' strengths and assets. Seventh, acceptance for who students are and where they come from and all their many beautiful identities. And eighth, opportunities for students to develop their voice and for us to be valuing those voices. And for me, and I, I hope they resonate with you, I hope they resonate with listeners, um, these eight elements are really important for young people to have a sense of belonging in a, in a school, in a community, uh, and hopefully too in a country. Tell me more about how you help empower your students to build that community and build that support system because you do a lot of teaching them how to do it themselves instead of doing it for them. Uh, uh, well, so there's so many big and small ways that you can um, hopefully work to nurture a sense of belonging in, uh, in a classroom, in a school, in a community. Um, I'd love to share with you some of the ways that schools across the country um, that I saw do it, but I'll share too a, a few um, from my own classroom. I think one of the, the things that's really important is um, really centering, so I'll pull on one of the, the eight pillars, centering student voice is really, really important. Um, and so very early on in our semester, so I teach US history, um, we start with um, early 1900 immigration history. Um, but I also wanna center my students' stories and my students' voices and experience in our study. Um, and so years ago when I was crafting my curriculum and I was looking at possible lesson plans and ideas for activities, a lot of them started with like, imagine um, you are new to a country or imagine you had to leave your country. And of course my kids don't have to imagine because my kids are experts. And so wanting to, after studying the history of early 1900 immigration, wanting to also connect and study the history of my students' migration stories um, and to center the importance of their stories in our classroom as important for us to study and learn from and that they're part of American history, just in the same way that we studied stories from 100 and 120 years ago and those stories are part of American history, their stories are too. Um, so this is very early in the year and this is just one example of many, but we, we started with food and students choose a favorite family recipe. And then they have to go home and they have to get that family recipe from uh, a family member, or maybe they have to call someone overseas because we know the family recipe from mom or grandpa is way better than anything on the internet. 
and then and it has no measurements probably it's like a handful of that exactly to that point they first have to translate in english and then they have to translate into like language others can understand so exactly to that point a handful well what does that mean <laughs> or make, uh, some of them is like cook until done when is done and then they have to go back to their families to ask okay so but how much and and that also centers our families as experts in our classroom and our families' knowledge as experts in our classroom. Families are my key partners in this work in supporting students. And so reaching out to families and trying to build community with families, I want to be learning from my families because they're the experts in their kids. Um, and so I want to be learning from them. And I want our students to see that um, their families and um, us in the classroom, that we're partners in this work and supporting their learning. So we're centering their, their expertise in the classroom. And then on top of the recipe, they have to go write a, a story about that food, why it's important. Maybe it's connected to a holiday or maybe it's something you eat on your way home from school. What are their first memories? Often it's like a, a party, maybe a birthday party. What are your first memories of cooking? Sometimes it's I burned it and it was terrible and I got better at it. And then a story of your migration, um, of coming here. And do you cook this now? And what does it remind you of? And then they have to cook the food and they bring it in for all of us to try. It's the best day. All of the desks are covered. Um, we've got chapatis. We've got from um, maybe Uganda. We've got chawanmushi from Japan. We have pandakejo from Brazil and, oh, let's see, some biryani from Afghanistan. But it doesn't stop there because it's important that we are centering our, centering our students' stories and their voices, not just in our classroom, but in the community. So I go around taking photos of all of the food that they've cooked and then eating it. And then we publish a cookbook and we share that cookbook out into the community. Um, and then uh, what's been powerful is I've now been running this project for now five years. We've had five editions of the cookbook. Each year, each student, uh, we do new new book. The last, last year, for the first time, the food services for our district reached out to us wanting to partner with us. And now for the last two years, each month, uh, the food services in our district uh, cooks one recipe from the cookbook and serves it to about 14,000 students in the district. It's oh, so amazingly, so amazing, cool, and speaks to your your point about the importance of community. I mean, I am so grateful for the food services in our district because they were the ones who reached out to us. Um, and they're the ones who are coming in. They're taking the recipes. They're adapting it to meet nutrition guidelines and to meet scalable. Um, so like, how do we scale this? Um, and then bringing that food in for our kids to test and taste um and showing them that they're the experts what how is it like it is at home how can we correct it what should we change before serving it to everyone that's just one example there are many we as i was saying earlier we um do a lot of work in action civics and getting involved in our community and my students tackling uh challenges in our community that they care deeply about and meeting with local officials um and trying to create uh sustainable change in their community um that's sustainable and systemic um, but this is just one example that's fun that's right at the beginning of our year. Um, and that's just thinking about voice. Um, there are so many other things I could talk about, many of which I learned from schools across the country that are thinking about all those other pillars of trying to uh, ensure my students feel safe and secure, of building the communities uh, within the class and outside. Um, so I'll give you one other example um, that's drawn from a, a school that I profile in the book. Um, so this school is in Texas. Um, it's in Houston, Texas, and it's a school for newcomers, new to the country, less than a year, called uh, Las Americas. And this school does many really powerful things, but one that um, really struck me were the ways in which they recognize that students might come to the school um, carrying more than their book bags, carrying more uh, than their pencils and their um, their books for class. Um, they might be carrying different traumas with them. Um, those could be traumas experienced in home country, those experienced in crossing and journeying to the US. 
um, those experienced here. A lot of our, our recent immigrants are either experiencing family separation or family reunification, and both are challenging. Um, for a family re reunification, you might be living with a, a mom or a dad who came to the U.S. many years earlier, and you haven't lived with them for a long time, and so you're rebuilding that relationship. And so what this school recognizes is for students to succeed academically, they also need to be supporting their students' social-emotional health. And um, they do that in a whole range of ways from um, work they do in the curriculum to having uh, counselors and social workers and um, a whole support system. But one thing in particular is they have a, a trauma therapy garden. And this garden outside in the walkways of the school has herbs from all around the world that kids who are coming from all around the world can recognize. And if a kid is feeling lonely or angry or upset or maybe can't express the emotions they're feeling, they can go with a teacher or counselor to that garden and maybe just smell the herbs and that's calming. Or maybe they'll spend some time gardening. And in the process of gardening, maybe they're transplanting a bougainvillea plant from one place to another. Um, that leads to conversations about how, when you replant a plant, what do you need? Do you need some fertilizer? Need some water? Do you need a little extra sun? Do you need a little extra care patting down the dirt? And when you migrate and move from one place to another, what might you need? And so it opens the door for those sorts of conversations. Um, there are so many things I saw when I traveled across the country looking at extraordinary schools. Um, when I came back to my classroom, I took a year off to start to research and write this book. But when I came back to my classroom, I thought about that garden in Houston, Texas. Um, now I have just a classroom, but I, I created a corner of my classroom and brought in herbs from around the world that my students would recognize. And I built this huge paper tree um, to just make it seem different than uh, a classroom that kids might walk into in high school. Um, and that's the calm corner. Um, it's directly tied from what I learned from Las Americas. And so thinking about for my students who need, need some time, need some space, but I still want them into the community of our class. I still want them able to access our learning. Um, but maybe they just, they, they want to be slightly separate from their classmates. They maybe want to be smelling some of the thyme or the rosemary or the lemongrass. Um, it, that's a, one, again, one way I'm trying to build both community, but also security. And so addressing one of those other pillars. And this one directly tied to some of the um, really just creative and innovative and inspiring practices I saw across the country while writing this book. I'm talking with author, teacher, and education advocate Jessica Lander about her book, Making Americans, which examines immigrant education in the United States. Stay tuned for the rest of our conversation after this break. Welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Maria Corpus. You can subscribe and hear previous episodes of this show on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever your favorite app is. Today, I'm talking with author Jessica Lander. Her book, Making Americans, takes a look at immigrant education in America through current efforts to improve immigrant education, profiles of immigrant youth in schools across the country, and key historical moments, including the 1923 Supreme Court case Meyer v. Nebraska, which ruled that a Nebraska law prohibiting instruction of foreign languages in schools was unconstitutional. Here is the rest of my conversation with Jessica Lander. I want to get to that Americanization movement. Talk to me about who was Jane Addams, um, what are settlement houses. Yeah, let's just start there. I'm just going to like remind listeners that I'm a history teacher, so I nerd out about history. I, you can definitely like shush me and say, okay, we're moving on, because um, the history is really exciting. Um, so for the book, I, I tell eight stories of the past, um, of extraordinary moments of cases, laws, and movements that have transformed immigrant education, really transformed schools. And at the heart of each of these stories is the story of courageous individuals. And I think that's really one I, I want to strike home with is um, there are really important laws and there are really important Supreme Court cases and uh, lower court cases. 
And I, I find them really fascinating. I hope others do as well. But I think just at the heart of each of these stories is these are stories about people. Um, these are stories about courageous people from all walks of life, um, all professions. We got teachers, we've got um, members of religious institutions, we've got um, uh, parents and lawyers and community activists um, and even presidents. Um, but these are just these are courageous individuals who are helping to shape history. So you asked about the Americanization movement, which is um, the first two stories, the first two historical stories start really with exploring the Americanization movement, first in New York City in chapter one, and then with the Settlement House movement in um, chapter two. And to just give listeners a, a little bit of context for what the Americanization movement is, um, if you're not as familiar, and I will be quite frank, I, before learning these stories for the book, um, I, I did not know most of these stories. Um, I was not taught most of these stories in school. I, I think they should be taught in school and I try now to teach them to my students, but these were not stories that I knew. Um, and so they've been really powerful for me to learn. Um, in the early 1900s, there was um, across the country an Americanization movement, as you said, that really um, in schools drove to shape newcomers into a very narrow image of what educators and others in powers thought it meant to be American. Um, when my great-grandfather came here from what is now Ukraine as a refugee in 1906, um, he and his family came to New York City and his, his culture, his history, his language, his religion were not wanted or welcome in most schools. Um, this was a tied with an, an increase in immigration in the early 1900s, late 1800s. And so educators, many educators across the country really saw it as part of their job at school is to encourage, um, sometimes force, um, students to abandon their cultural and religious and linguistic heritages um, and adopt, again, as I said, this sort of very narrow sense of what they saw um, as the only way to be American. Um, now, that is the Americanization movement as a whole. What's interesting is, uh, that I talk about in chapter two, there are many things that are interesting, but one of them um, is the work of Jane Addams. Um, and Jane Addams was uh, an activist, an advocate, um, a community organizer in Chicago. And at the uh, end of the 1800s, she creates Whole House, um, which some listeners might know um, is it's a settlement house. And it's the precursor to and um, the forebear to um, community centers, a, a, a community house that is supporting the community in all sorts of ways. It might be having classes um, for adults or for kids. It might have different types of programming. Um, it would be doing advocacy work for the community in terms of policies. Um, but it's really a community hub um, before we had community hubs in that way. Um, and really, we can see community centers and community schools um, really coming out of the settlement house movement. But Jane Addams, end of the 1800s, creates one of the first settlement houses in the U.S. And um, this idea of a settlement house, which really started in immigrant communities, in supporting those immigrant-rich communities, um, spreads really, really quickly across the country. There are still many settlement houses today um, that are, are still um, vibrant hubs of their communities. Um, and so what Jane Addams did is create this model that we, we still see the ripple effect. Um, she herself worked in an immigrant community in, um, in Chicago. And they had all sorts of programming for adults. They had uh, English classes. They had other types of classes. They um, did a lot of advocacy work in terms of laws and policies. Um, but one thing that I found particularly striking, there are many things that I think are really interesting about Jane Addams. One in particular was the ways in which she recognized and valued the strengths of immigrant children and immigrant families. Um, thinking about one of those pillars of belonging, of 
the recognition, the importance of recognizing students' strengths and assets. Um, she has this quote that roughly goes, um, we send students to Italy, but we don't utilize Italy in the classroom. Um, there were a lot of Italian immigrants in um, her Chicago community. And just in a way that many educators at the time were really encouraging um, or enforcing students to abandon their cultural, religious, and linguistic heritage, Jane Addams strikes me as really interesting in the ways in which she's seeing those assets that students are bringing, their language, their history, their culture as real strengths um, in their communities as important for them and important for their classmates. And not just students, but also families. So Whole House created um, was called a labor museum. And it was a relatively small museum. But I think the idea, again, is really interesting and important. Um, what she and others who worked at Whole House saw was how students in school, immigrant origin students in school, uh, many of them came away uh, looking down on their parents because they were being taught that what their families brought was not um, of importance or valued in their new schools and their new communities here. And what they did with the, the labor museum was center and celebrate the, the craftsmanship that many of their families brought from the countries they came with. Um, and Jane Addams tells this story that's then captured in speeches she gave of uh, a little girl who was embarrassed by her mother and wouldn't walk in the same door as her mother. Um, but one day saw her mother um, speaking about her craft and her work at the museum um, to others. And that made her really curious. And so she started asking her mom uh, about home and about these traditions and about craft um, and about the knowledge her, her, um, her mother brought um, and had to pass down. And Jane Addams ends the speech by talking about how they walked to the same door into Whole House, that she wasn't embarrassed to walk with her mother. And so I think one of the things that really struck me in learning Jane Addams' story and the ways in which she was advocating for and with immigrant, origin, uh, immigrant communities is the way she recognized strengths um, and seeing them as really valuable for families and communities as ways to connect children and parents as they made new homes and new lives here, but also it's just really important for the communities at large. I love what she said about settlement houses must never lose its flexibility, its power of quick adaption. And in my head, I was just thinking, you know, has our school system expanded too much where we have a hard time making those quick decisions, being flexible, having adaption from the current state of public education? And it just kind of made me think of how do you start to do that in you know, 100 years later, how do you stay flexible with the new immigrant origin students who are coming today? They're coming over there with their own stories. And so how do you adapt to what their needs are? Because I feel like it might change every year. Yeah, I, I think it's really important to be constantly thinking about the ways in which we're, are we best supporting students? And if we're not, what are the ways we can learn from others? I mean, I'm constantly learning, growing. Um, it's been really powerful to learn from others. And I think, I think I said it earlier, is we have very few opportunities to learn from others. It's Teaching is a very lonely profession often. We have few opportunities to learn from our colleagues in our own buildings. And I have amazing colleagues. Um, I don't get enough opportunities to learn from them, let alone learn from colleagues in other schools in our state or across the country. But it's from learning from others that we're going to be inspired by new ideas, see things. Oh, you're doing it that way. And this, oh, I love that idea. How, how can I bring it back to my classroom? How can I bring it back to my school? Uh, you, you get ex invigorated. It's, I mean, when I was writing the book and researching and visiting these schools, it was so exhilarating, not just trying to capture these stories to share them in the book, but just for me as an educator going, oh, I like this idea. Let me write that down. How can I, how can I bring that to my classroom? I think we both need more ways to learn from each other, more opportunities to learn from each other. And then of course, too, thinking about how we can be creating our schools to be flexible and adaptable. Um, but I think there's also really powerful examples. So we look at the settlement house movement and I can draw a direct connection to really innovative, interesting work happening in Aurora, Colorado right now. In Aurora, there are five schools that have together banded together to create the Aurora Action Zone. 
And they have created a community school approach that we can see the origins of in Jane Addams' whole house in Chicago. And what they've done is recognize that there are strengths, so many, so many strengths in their community in terms of nonprofits and businesses and local hospitals and immigrant parents. And seeing schools not as open from seven and closing at three, but open from sunrise to sunset is like really vibrant hubs of the community that are drawing everyone together and tapping all their strengths. And by bringing people together, everyone is strengthened. And at the heart of it, student success is um, really, really supportive. And so I'm seeing really innovative things happening that have direct ties to um, Whole House and seeing the path that uh, Aurora's Action Zone took of figuring out, okay, we have a, a growing immigrant community and how can we better support them and thinking about ways that we can turn into a community school model to tap all of these strengths and collaborate together. Um, they were relatively flexible. Um, they were innovative and in thinking creatively about, okay, so how, how can we tap these strengths? And so I see a direct tie there and I, I think we just have lots to learn from them and so many other schools across the country. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with teacher, writer, and education policy advocate Jessica Lander, author of Making Americans, Stories of Historic Struggles, New Ideas, and Inspiration in Immigrant Education. It's available now wherever you get your books. Join the conversation on social media. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app, where you can also leave us a review. Or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089 for a chance to be featured on an upcoming show. Okay, so let's dig into the Nebraska history. You cover a really powerful story um, from around 1920 in Hampton, Nebraska. Back then it was illegal to teach languages other than English. So give us a little history lesson on this, as I'm guessing many of our listeners might not know about Meyer versus the state of Nebraska. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is a... I mean, there's so many cool historical stories. They're really <laughs> powerful. And I, I just love that we, we get to nerd out over Nebraskan history. For listeners, imagine it's a, a Tuesday in late May 1920. And we're at the Zion Lutheran Church at the parochial school um, in the community uh, outside Hampton. And Robert Meyer has a, a one-room schoolhouse. Um, and he is teaching his, his class uh, the Bible in German during recess. And for doing this, he is arrested because, as of course you just said, um, it was illegal at the time to teach languages other than English. Um, indeed, in um, about half the states in the country, it was illegal to teach languages other than English. Um, specifically, um, these language laws were coming out of uh, a particular attack on German, um, and this was coming out of World War I that there was huge anti-German sentiment coming out of World War I. So you saw the, the closing of German newspapers. You saw um, German food pretzels stripped from menus, um, German food being taken away, towns and streets, many in Nebraska, um, being changed from German names to non-German names. People stopped playing German music. Sauerkraut was renamed as Liberty Cabbage. But I, I think even more ridiculous is German measles um, was changed to Liberty measles. So you had to proudly get your Liberty measles. But in all seriousness, there was just these huge waves of anti-German sentiment. So 1920, Robert Myers teaching German during recess um, to his, his one-room school. Um, and he's asked little 11-year-old uh, Raymond Parpart to read from the Bible. Um, he's reading the story of Jacob's ladder. A local official comes in, sees this happen, and arrests him. Again, I, I said earlier about these stories of history is they're the stories of courageous individuals. Uh, Robert Meyer could have just paid the fine, but he doesn't. He takes his case up to the court. He loses in lower court. He loses at the state level, but he brings his case all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court in 1923, in a really fascinating ruling um, for those who love the law, it's a really cool, interesting ruling of what it hinges on. I'm happy to go into it. Um, but in 1923, for the first time, um, the Supreme Court comes down 
Oh, well, it's not for the first time. In 1923, the Supreme Court comes down in favor of Robert Meyer and for the first time enshrines the right for students to learn languages other than English. It's really powerful. And again, it's the story of a courageous individual, courageous teacher who didn't back down. Um, and he's quoted um, as saying, it, it's not a matter of money. This is a que question of principles. And I shall not compromise with what I know is right. The interesting backstory on the legalese of it is one of the, the underpinnings of this case actually brings us back to a story that ties to Jane Addams for our history nerds and the progressive movement. So at the end of the 1800s, there was this famous Supreme Court case, uh, Lochner v. New York. And Lochner v. New York was um, bread bakers um, saying that they were working too many hours. Um, and a conservative ruling comes down that basically says to make a law that prevents the number of hours someone works. There were a lot of uh, pro uh, progressive laws at the time trying to cut the number of hours to make them um, livable, to try to raise pay, to try to make better working conditions, all of these laws to um, support and advocate for workers. Um, but the, the ruling in Lochner v. New York says to do this, to uh, bring down the number of hours and to make it a workable um, week, you are trampling on the right to contract, um, that you are trampling on the essentially the right of the worker to be exploited by their employer. It doesn't say that exactly in the language, but that's basically what it comes out to be. Um, and for the next 20 years, Lochner v. New York is used as a way to strike down progressive legislation that would support workers' rights. In um, So all the progressive era laws that tried to um, have a fair minimum wage and to lower the number of hours that um, workers worked or to make safer working conditions. Um, it was really hard coming up against Lochner because this case said, oh, no, but all of these are trampling on this right of contract. But in 1923, the language laws were found to be unconstitutional in part because it was trampling on the right of Robert Meyer to teach his profession. And so it's just like fascinating to, to look at the legalese behind it but also just really powerful in the way that Robert Meyer's conviction at a time where there is enormous anti-German sentiment, he still takes his case up to the court and he still brings his case enshrines this right for students moving forward. But it, it is a really important story and it's an important story for Nebraska and it's an important story for the country. And I think what's powerful too and is worth mentioning is one of the things that was most powerful for me in learning these stories, as I said, I did not know these stories setting out, so you didn't know them, I didn't know them either, <laughs> is having the opportunity to, to learn from people who are at the heart of this history, who are part of this history. And so um, in as many cases as possible for these stories, speaking to those who they or their families uh, help transform, um, transform the country, transform history. Um, so I got to speak to um, the current pastor at the Zion Lutheran Church um, for a really long time. And Pastor David Federn was absolutely wonderful. And it was so powerful to learn from him about this community um, and to hear about the history of this community that's had such a powerful impact on the country. Um, I, I got to speak with one of the judges in Hamilton County where this lower case was held. And I got to speak, too, to the daughter of Raymond Parpart, um, the 11-year-old boy who was reading the Bible in German on that Tuesday in late uh, in May afternoon, um, 1920. Um, and that was, that was really, really powerful for me to hear from her, to hear her father's story, um, uh, to hear the ways in which she too, she had met um, Robert Meyer. Robert Meyer, of course, has passed away since, but she had had an opportunity to meet Robert Meyer. And so to hear from her. And I, I'm so, so grateful to so many people I learned from, from uh, for writing this book. So from my students who spent so much time and told their stories, from all these educators who let me in from their, uh, let me in to their classrooms. And also to, to people like Raymond Parpart's daughter, 
and to the pastor at the Zion Lutheran Church and to so many others who, who shared with me and helped me for me to see this history come to life and then help me be able to try to bring it to life in the pages of the book. We are getting down to the last few minutes. What are kind of the biggest takeaways that you've learned? But kind of where do we where do we go from here as we're thinking about the future of immigrant origin students, origin students in our schools today? I think really for me, I'd, I'd do twofold there. So one is what are the ways that we can um, reach out to and learn from others? Um, and that could be folks in our community, that could be other educators, but also others in our community. Not just learn, but collaborate with others. I think I'm really striving to seek out more collaboration. So if anyone listening wants to collaborate with me, please reach out. I would love to learn from you about the work you're doing. Um, but thinking about the ways we can build more collaboration, more ways we can be working together um, to better support our students. And then thinking back to you, you raised um, the story of Jane Addams. Um, so that's got me thinking about the importance of strengths. Um, that is uh, something I think about every day. I see my kids and all the strengths they bring. And so I think I would just end with just a reminder about all the ways our immigrant origin students enrich our schools and our communities. They, they bring a wealth, a wealth of strengths. They bring a wealth of perspectives and knowledge and skills. And I think we have so much to learn from innovation and creative educators um, and school programs across the country right now that can support our work. We have so much to learn from remarkable young people. And we have so much to learn from this history, um, some of this history right here in Nebraska. And all of this can, can better support our work in creating welcoming and vibrant and inclusive communities that support a strong sense of belonging for our immigrant origin students, for, for all of our students. Um, but thinking really about those strengths that um, our students bring, valuing and investing in those strengths, and reaching out to to folks in our community and folks across the country so that we can create really strong, welcoming, inclusive schools that nurture that strong sense of belonging. So where can people contact you to collaborate? Easiest way is my website has different ways to get in contact with me. It's just jessicalander.com. Um, and I'm also on, you know, the other social medias, but that's probably the easiest way to reach out in all the different forms. I hope folks will get copies of the book. It is available on, first and foremost, at your local independent bookstore. It is also, though, on the Amazons and all the other big platforms. And it is on in hard copy and audio and e-versions. Um, but I really hope folks find the stories inspiring, um, particularly the Nebraska stories, it's just, it's been really powerful to, to learn these stories and um, such an honor to be able to share them with you and with everyone. Thank you so much. Thank, it was such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for having me on the air. Really, really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun to be in conversation with you. Riverside Chats was created by Tom Noblock and is a production of 91.5 KIOS Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukowitz. Remember, you can find our backlog of Riverside Chats episodes wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you'd leave us a review. Thank you for listening. I'm Maria Corpus. 